Thank you. You may be seated. If you would like to turn into your New Testament to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, I'll be reading from verses 1 through verse 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street and tied at the doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered, as Jesus had told them to. The people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around and everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Will you please pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this day to worship you and to come into your presence. And whether we're in our homes or here in this sanctuary, in this place of worship, we acknowledge that you are Lord of lords and King of kings. And we do so because we need to understand that we are not to be on the throne, but you are. And we ask that as we examine and better understand this portion of Mark that reminds us about the humility of our Savior, that you would remind us of the need also for our humility. So I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be at work within our lives that you would encourage us with your word, that your Holy Spirit would show what it means for us to apply each of these sections of Scripture to our own daily activities, to the way in which we think, the way in which we behave, the way in which we treat other people. May we do so in such a manner that represents the gospel. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you have reread a passage of Scripture that I'm sure is familiar to you. You've been reminded of maybe some of the details that are found not in this particular passage, but in other parallel gospel passages. For example, that in uh, Matthew, we're told about the, the, the reference to Zechariah, the quote there in regards to not being afraid We're told also in that gospel portion of the parallel passage that the the city at large was somewhat stirred and concerned 
They didn't really heed the warning not to be afraid, but they were afraid. They were concerned. And there were those that were thinking, this guy is from Nazareth. We're here in Jerusalem. Nazareth is sort of like a backwoods, backtown type of place where no one of importance ever comes from. And yet he's coming into Jerusalem with all this fanfare. We're also reminded in the Gospel of Luke, for example, that the people were joyful in their praising. And why? Because of the miracles that Jesus had performed, and they knew about those miracles. And, and that same passage of Scripture in Luke, we're told that even though the crowds were joyful and rejoicing, when Jesus came into the city and he looked at it, he wept. He cried. Can you picture God weeping over his city? And then, of course, John reminds us of the fact that the disciples didn't really understand what was taking place. And I wonder if this morning, some 2,000 years later, as we read this passage, do we totally understand what it is that God is speaking to us about? When I think about this picture, this portrait, so to speak, of humility, and I ask myself the question, am I personally applying what I'm learning, what I see in this passage to my daily thought life, to the words in which I speak, to the way in which I behave? I have to admit that I need that kind of reminder, not just like once a week or once so often, not even daily. I need that reminder almost hourly. I, I somehow seem to forget what God's Word says in a very quick moment. Now, maybe it's an age thing, right? I am, I am getting older, and maybe I'm forgetting much quicker than what I would like to admit, but the truth is, is that I need a reminder that the gospel that has been given me is also a reminder that that, that that Chuck Garriott needs to remember his true place in regards to God's economy in terms of how God is working. And to be honest with you, you know, you don't have to be in a position, let's say, of notoriety or significance, that, or at least the world would say is significant. You, you just have to get up in the morning and go about your day and have breakfast, and next thing you know, you're having thoughts that need to be challenged by this particular passage, this particular demonstration of humility. As we look at what we're told here in regards to Christ's humility, and by the way, Marty did a wonderful job reading that passage in Isaiah and then Philippians. And again, these are familiar passages to you, but I wanted you to have those two passages in front of you, in the back, well, in, in the forefront of your mind, uh, so that as you think about what's happening here in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, that this picture of Isaiah 40, which, which, is, you know, which begins with, behold your God, and then he goes through, Isaiah goes through this long list of attributes that we're told about just how incredibly significant and powerful and, uh, and, and in every way God is. And then you look at Philippians 2 that this God would become flesh and live amongst us and 
would humble himself. And Paul there is exhorting us to have that same mindset. And I think that this is what Mark is doing too for us, is that he is wanting us to be challenged in regards to our pride, our lack of humility. And he wants us to have this portrait here in Mark chapter 11. So let's look at the three different aspects that I, that I think are important for us as we understand what Mark is teaching us. The first is, let's try to get a better sense of who these people are that have come out from, you know, all kinds of places to join the crowd and to, to worship, in a sense, to acknowledge Christ. It's interesting to me to think about Jerusalem, to think about Israel in this particular part or time in, in history. You know, uh, you're familiar with, at least in some general way, the Roman Empire. Well, the Roman Empire is more than just significant. You know, it lasts for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was incredibly wealthy. It was incredibly powerful. It, it, had, it, it had taken over large sections of the world. And Israel, the, the Jewish people here in Jerusalem and, and in Palestine, in this part of the world, you're like, who are they? Right? They're nothing significant. They're under the oppression of the Romans. And if it, wasn't, if it wasn't the Romans, it might have been someone else. You know, think about how significant in this time and age India was. Or China, for example. We don't often think about these parts of the world. Or, or let's go to Europe, Western Europe. Think about Spain or Germany. Or, I mean, what we would call now Germany or Spain. All those areas, there are lots of significant places in the world. So in some ways, you might look at this, this setting and think to yourself, well, is it really that significant? But the answer is, it's very significant. These are very significant people because they have received, they have received God's promises. They have been the recipient of God's covenants. They have been the recipients of God's word. I mean, at this point in time, you've got the entire Old Testament, right? Genesis to Malachi. You've got those beautiful psalms. You've got the Proverbs, Song of Solomon. You've got all this rich word that God has given to his people. You have the prophets, right? Those in China or India or present-day Spain or Germany or Rome did not receive that kind of attention from God. And so in some ways, as as you would live out your life as a Jew, whether it be Jerusalem or in the north, in Galilee, you saw yourself as being somebody of significance, somebody that was the recipient of God's promises. And so as you think through the Gospels and the interaction that the Jewish people, whether they be Pharisees or Sadducees or just the common person is having with Jesus, they see themselves as being a bit above the rest of the entire world, these great nations that exist. And so you have that dynamic going on, I'm sure. And of course, as they thought about the promises of God, they realized that the Messiah was to come, and now Jesus is here, and there are those who are saying, this is it, this is the Messiah. 
And so if you think about it in terms of the whole scheme of redemptive history, as these people are coming together, and you got those who have been with Jesus coming into to Jerusalem and those who are in the city and are greeting him, there is this incredible optimism in terms of now we are really receiving sort of the zenith of God's promises and everything is going to be kind of put together in a way that, that is how it should be. Because out of all the nations of the world, out of all the people of the world, we are the chosen people of God. And so sure, we've been under the oppression of the Romans, but that's just temporary. Just like we were under the oppression of the Egyptians, that was temporary. And now they have Jesus, the king, right? And you, you, you get this sense of all this, I'll use the term nationalism in regards to now we're really going to come about and being all that we are. And there had to be, at some point, with many of these people, a realization that, you know what? This doesn't really quite fit somehow. Because if we're really as significant as we think we are, and as this event should be, and especially in comparison to the rest of the world, what kind of an animal are we, are we, I mean, like, do you remember the old Pintos that people used to drive? Maybe used to drive one, right? I mean, instead of a Mercedes-Benz or a Tesla or whatever, you know, we're like in this, like, this little car that, you know, what are we doing here? This doesn't seem to make a lot of sense in a way. And so what you have here is sort of this confusion I mean, even though they're, they're engaged and there seems to be optimism, etc., it doesn't take us long, and we can understand that the same group of people that are now crying Hosanna in the highest, who are all excited, putting down their cloaks and their palm branches and, and, and really bringing in this, this king in a way that is kind of fitting, then next thing you know, they're the same people that are shouting, crucify, crucify. And so, in a way, I think it's important for us just to stop here and ask the question, just exactly where are we in terms of our relationship with Christ? Is it possible that in some way, shape, or form, that we might mimic some of the people here? That we might mimic sort of the, like, what's going on? You know, one of the things that I, I think most of us would acknowledge, and, and in terms of being concerned about, and that is, are we, as a church today, under our circumstances, demonstrating the kind of humility that we ought to be demonstrating in terms of the world? Or does the world see us as being, oh, look at these, and, you know, the next, the next word is arrogant, proud people. And, as they, and they see us in, in more of a condemning spirit. And look, there are issues that we're very concerned about that are going on within our, our communities and within our states and within our country, and rightfully so. But as a church, as an individual, as a, as a believer who has a place in, in, in the workplace, in the educational environment, in the neighborhood, uh, or maybe in your recreation, at the gym, wherever it may be, when they see us, 
what is it that they're seeing? Do they see something that is more Christ-like or do they see something that is, oh, you know, Chuck Berry really is kind of, kind of snarky, arrogant, you know, sort of has these ways about him that show that he's somehow better than other people as opposed to the humility that needs to be there. A friend of Debbie and ours, the couple that lived a few doors down from us, came to D.C. a number of years back. Uh, it's probably been, I don't know, maybe eight years or so, but they had just finished being missionaries in China. Young couple. Uh, he wanted to go on to law school, so he went to Georgetown and got his law degree. Uh, they were part of our small group, and they regularly met in our home, and we got to know them before they started having children, and we've been following them. But uh, this friend, his name is Justin Early, graduates, top in his class from Georgetown, uh, finds a great position at a law firm in Richmond, and, is in, and he describes that when he went into his law practice, that uh, everything was kind of perfect. I'm, I'm putting those words out there for him, but really when you read his story, that's, that's the picture you get, you know, had this incredible education, now I've got this incredible position. Life is really good, his family is healthy. Uh, they, they got into a new home, everything is just right. But then he explains that at this one Saturday night, he woke up terrified. He was just, just terrified and he couldn't quite understand why. And then the next night, it was the same thing. And by the end of the weekend, he describes that he's in the ER. He doesn't know why he's so anxious, why he is so terrified, why, like, for some reason he can't sleep. And, and uh, they just tell him that, well, you know, you're overly anxious. And, and for what reason? He, he, he writes. And then he goes on and he describes that um, it got bad. He needed sleeping pills to try to go to sleep. And the sleeping pills didn't always work. And so he went to drinking alcohol. And that would kind of help calm him down and help him get to sleep. But even that wasn't working. And in time, he realized that his whole focus in life, there wasn't physically anything wrong with him. There wasn't anything wrong with him emotionally. He did not need to be on medication. But what was happening is his whole life was being defined by this view of the world and the, and the way in which he was functioning was totally outside the realm of the gospel. He had become, as a Christian, his Lord. And it was more than he could really handle. And so in time, as he, as he kind of worked through this and as he began to pray and began to develop what he calls these common habits or these common rules he realized that the gospel really had somehow escaped him. And I wonder for us, as the people of God today, if there aren't times in our lives where somehow the gospel has kind of escaped us. And I think the picture here in Mark is a picture of people who, yeah, they had been exposed to the gospel, but somehow it wasn't really clicking. Secondly, let's try to better understand our Lord Let's, let's understand what it means when Mark describes what he does here in regards to this distinct king and distinct kingdom. 
It's interesting to me to note that in the Gospel of Matthew, you will see the word kingdom over 50 times. You'll see it repeated 50 times. It's also interesting that in the book of Mark, you have 16 chapters. The first 10 chapters give you the overview of what was happening for about three years. But then chapters 11 through 16 are giving you the highlights of what, well, uh, 11 through 15 of what was taking place within five or six days at most. And then the last chapter, of course, in regards to the resurrection. It's interesting that there is now a spotlight in terms of length of chapters, length of words uh, placed at this particular point. And the accent, again, is upon this Savior coming into Jerusalem. The city of God, Zion. The place where the temple is. The place where the temple has been built, has been destroyed, has been rebuilt, remodeled. You know, it's just... It's just an incredibly important place in terms of the Jewish person. So for Jesus now to be coming in is quite significant. And as I mentioned before, as he comes in, he is indeed acknowledged. But he's acknowledged in a way that basically says, these people see me in a certain light, but they do not see me, truly, they do not see me in the light of Isaiah 40 of this great God who speaks and the world and the universe is created. They don't really see Jesus. They don't see this dynamic of the one who, is, who has given them the Sermon on the Mount. They're looking for, a, a, again, a, a person who's going to come and is going to save them from the tyranny and from the oppression of a particular government. They're not seeing this Jesus as one who has come to transform their heart. They're not seeing the Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They're not seeing the Jesus who, who enters a person's life in their heart. Because that person sees the need for Christ. They're not seeing the Jesus who will take the person who recognizes their poverty of spirit and is mourning because they see their sin. At the Jesus that blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The Jesus that said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They're not seeing that Jesus. They're seeing one that is, in essence, been created in their own mind in their own thinking. They're not seeing the Jesus. The, they're not seeing the, the Jesus that is going to go to the cross. And just like we said earlier, some of the Gospels accent the fact that the disciples, those who had been with Christ for the last three years, were confused and did not understand exactly who he was. 
And I think one of the benefits as we come in, we worship, one of the benefits as we spend time in the scriptures of reading the passages that remind us about the nature of God, the Isaiah 40 type passages, are so needed for us because when we become so consumed by our own lives and the issues that are, that are haunting us and are nipping us at the heels, we need, we need the Isaiah 40s and the Philippians too. And then, second, then thirdly, we need to have the right kind of worship. Again, these people were, in a sense, worshiping Christ. They were honoring him. They were coming alongside and they were doing what they could as a way of saying, we think this is someone who is significant. But let me ask you this. As you think back through the Gospels and you think back in regards to the way in which people responded to Jesus' ministry, you'll note that there are those who recognize his presence, who recognize his significance to a degree, but they don't really understand who he is. And so therefore their worship, their submission is part at best. For example, in this same chapter of Mark, if you go back just a few verses from where we read, I'm sorry, uh, in the previous chapter of Mark, chapter 10, not chapter 11. If you go back to chapter 10, a few verses back from where we read, you'll note that there are two individuals that are highlighted. One is the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus. He's really dressed well. He looks good. He has an incredible reputation. Everybody really probably respects him, etc. And he says to Jesus, on his knees, by the way, he's in, his, he's in the dust in his good suit, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting, that dialogue there, but, but again, the, the picture is somewhat of someone, uh, the picture is, is of this individual who is giving Christ respect and honor and, and maybe even glory. You know, he's, he's truly in awe about Christ. But then when Jesus says to him, Go sell all your possessions after he has examined the man and helped him see his sin, which he doesn't see. Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go sell all your possessions. Give the proceeds to the poor and then come and follow me. And of course he doesn't. He goes away sad because he had great wealth. Then in the next section of Mark 10, you have the account of blind Bartimaeus. And blind Bartimaeus isn't dressed so well. And he probably doesn't care how he's dressed. He can't see, but he can hear. And he has heard about this Jesus. And when he hears, so he's only able to discern the coming of Christ with one part of the senses, so to speak, or all of his senses. He hears that Jesus is coming he does not say to Jesus, Jesus, show me what I must do to gain my sight. He cries out to Jesus and he says, have mercy on me. Those are really sharp, distinct pictures of people responding to Christ. And then you come to chapter 11, again, verses later, and you're you're given the, the, the camera view, so to speak, of all these people 
who are, in a sense, worshiping Christ, but really are not. Are not. And so my question for us today is, where are we? Are we the blind Bartimaeus who, who recognizes that they have nothing and that they need the mercy of God upon their lives and they think that way daily and they, they, think, they think about their circumstances that way daily, that whatever it is that they have, it is a gift from God. The fact that they desire to worship, the fact that they desire to go to God in confession, the fact that that they desire to be involved in his work, in his mission, in the life of the church, is all a gift from God. The fact that they see their sin and need and know of their need for Christ is all a gift for God. And as they go through their day, they're in a sense almost overwhelmed with the fact that they have been given the privilege of one more day to worship and to serve and to honor their Lord. Years ago, Debbie and I had the privilege of meeting uh, a couple in Johannesburg, uh, somewhat older than we were, maybe 10 years, I'm not sure. But this was in 1992. I had met, I had met my friend, uh, I'll call him John. I met John in 1991, in Johannesburg, for the first time. This is before the, the end of apartheid. And we had spent some time talking, and the following year, Debbie uh, went back to Johannesburg with me, and this friend, John, uh, offered to take us to this game reserve called Kruger Park. It's a large game reserve, maybe the size of, I don't know, Delaware or, uh, or New Jersey. It's, it's large, and you can spend weeks there, and, and it's just an amazing place. And so he had offered to take us. And on the way, he shared with me where he was spiritually. And he said, uh, Chuck, he said, I just want you to know that I am not, I am not a professing Christian. But he said, you should know that there was a time in my life where I was, where I, I, I was part of the church, I taught Sunday school, I uh, uh, you know, I was just, you know, I was a Christian, I, I thought. He didn't tell me why, but something happened where he concluded that he was no longer a professing Christian, and he wanted me to know that. And he knew that, he knew where I was coming from, he knew where Debbie was coming from, and so I didn't try to ask a lot of questions. I was thankful for the fact that we were friends, and secondly, that he would share this with me. And he, would, and he would do so as a way of saying, I just want you to know who I am. And he was the kind of guy that if you had met him and if you had talked to him, you would have just said, this is just the most dear guy in the world. Like, he's helpful, he's, he looks for ways of, of serving other people, etc. But he does not acknowledge Christ as Lord. And so over the years, you know, when you have those kinds of relationships, and, and Debbie and I went back the following year with our family, and we spent this, this long, or this season of time, about six months in Johannesburg, and we spent a lot of time with John and his family, and, and uh, it was really a great time. But then after that, 
virtually with maybe one small example, uh, one small season or uh, interaction with an email, heard nothing from John. It was, that was it. And over the years, though, as I remembered the conversation, and I remembered his wife and his family, all who we got to know, I would pray for them. But uh, that would be the extent. There was no communication, and I had no way of finding where he was, and he had no way of finding me until a couple months ago. I got an email from him. And he emailed me, and he said, uh, he kind of reintroduced himself, and he said, I, I read a prayer that you had written for President Biden. And he said, when I read it, I thought, I need to reach out and tell him what has happened in my life. And what he described was that uh, back in 2009, and he didn't give me all the details in the email, but he said, I came back to Christ. And I recommitted my life, and I'm enjoying spending time in the Word and in worship and being a member of a church. And he went on and on and described what it meant for him now to serve and to worship the Lord. And when I thought about that, I thought, you know, I, I wonder if there aren't a lot of believers who know that there are so many different areas, of, like, kind of like my friend uh, Justin, who, who said, you know, I'm a believer, but man, there's nothing in my thinking, there's nothing in my behavior in a way that is consistent with the gospel. But yet he's still saying, yeah, I'm a believer. And I wonder if in, in some cases, just like the people at the crowd, they act like they're believers, but they're not. I wonder how many of us need to get to the point where we say, you know what, I'm not really trusting in Christ alone. I'm really trusting in myself. I'm really trusting in my means, my history, my past. But I'm not really trusting in Christ alone. And my hope and prayer is that we leave Palm Sunday, as we go into this significant week, that we would all re-examine our lives and our hearts and our attitudes, first of all, to the Lord and to his work and to his people and ask the question, am I really in sync with Christ? Or have I in some way created, for whatever reason, my own image of Jesus? And that's what I've been worshiping. But instead, I need to come to him and say, Lord, I surrender everything to you for your glory, for your purposes. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, when I think about this passage, I think about the way in which your, your people responded. I'm sure there's, there are many, many lessons for us to learn, but I do believe that this portrait of humility is important for us to understand. Lord, help us to understand who we are as your people. Help us to better understand your nature. Help us to better understand what true worship looks like. And we can only do any of these things, desire as well as see them fulfilled through the gospel, through what Christ is doing. And so we come to you humbly, 
asking your forgiveness, asking that you would cleanse us, asking that you would renew our hearts and give us, give us a renewed sense of your presence. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please stand with me and sing 235.